How is everybody? Good, good, good. Hey, it's good to have Kyle back, right? He loves it when I point him out and talk about him in front of all you guys, so um, it's good. All right. Hey, we have a lot of ground to cover, so I can't tell you a lot of my funny anecdotes. I know that's why you guys come, but we're actually going to have to dive into the Word pretty quickly today, because uh, you guys didn't like, no service thought that was funny when I said that you guys like my funny anecdotes, so... Obviously, you guys don't care about my funny anecdotes, so it's good that we're... Okay, yeah, thanks. thanks. It's too late. It's too late. <laughs> um, oh, we do have a lot of ground to cover. Chapter 7, we're going to do the whole chapter. We've been breaking up chapters, and we're going to do all of 7, because there's not a really good stopping point in the middle of it, so we're just going to kind of blaze through the whole thing uh, today. It's 52 verses, so it's a lot, but we'll, we'll be okay. We'll make it. If you haven't been here... Um, we've been doing the Gospel of John. Gospel of John is cool because it's primarily about the life of Jesus, and it's primarily written to people who don't know Jesus. So it's really good, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, it teaches us a lot of basics, a lot of fundamentals. It teaches us the nature and character of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And if you're not a Christian, it's a great place to start, okay? And if, you have, if you're just now joining us, we're, being in, uh, we're gonna be in chapter seven today. So you can go back and read the first six chapters. It's not hard to catch up. You can watch the sermons. Uh, but what we talked about last week was this, and there was a, a turning point, a shift that has happened now in the Gospel of John, and it happens in chapter six. That shift is essentially this, is that Jesus has been Mr. Popular. Man, tens of thousands of people following him around because of the miracles, because he's feeding literally tens of thousands of people. He's doing all these really, really neat things. And then in the middle of chapter six, what happens is Jesus kind of loses his popularity with a lot of the people. The reason why is Jesus starts addressing the sins and the darkness of man's heart. And so everyone loves Jesus when he's like giving them stuff, right? but no one likes Jesus when he's telling them how to live their lives. And so we see a lot of people start to fall away from following Jesus. So what we talked about last week was this, not where we should go for fulfillment, but where we do go. Where we should go, I'm going to say this, it's obvious, right? Jesus, right? But where we often go is not to Jesus for fulfillment. We go to all these other things that we talked about last week, okay? And then the other side of last week that we talked about is, if we choose to go the Jesus route, the Christian route, it takes effort. It takes discipline, right? That it is a lifestyle change, that it is a commitment. And again, when people start to talk about commitment, we don't like that, and we kind of back away, right? This week, we're going to talk about this. A lot of different things that are going to come up in chapter 7. There's just a lot of topics that we're going to talk about today. But where we're going to end is on a very fundamental point about Christianity, and this is what it is is that the law, the Ten Commandments in particular, right? The law points to Jesus who saves us by His grace. We're not saved by the Ten Commandments. We're saved by the one that authored the Ten Commandments. That's what we're going to talk about, okay? And we'll get into that towards the end of the lesson. So again, a lot of ground to cover. We'll do it and we'll be fine. We'll get you guys out of here and um, you guys can enjoy uh, the, the rest of your day. So let me pray We'll dive into this. You should have a notes handout. It does not have everything I'm going to say on it because I couldn't fit it all. So uh, I did the best I could, but you have as many notes as I could possibly fit onto a full page. And uh, you have all those in front of you. The YouVersion app, if you have that, the Bible app, it's got all the notes and the scripture on it. I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible because I just like the longest acronym Bible out there. And, uh, and so any <laughs> anyways, I'll pray and we'll get into this. All right. Um, God, I just want to tell you I love you. Lord, when I get to get up here and teach, I look out and I see all these faces of people that I know and I know their stories and I know what you've done for them, God, and I'm not trying to get all sappy, Lord, but thank you for keeping your hand on my brother Kyle, Lord, and keeping him healthy, Lord, and getting him back so quickly. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for him. Thank you, God, for all the stories that are represented in this church. Thank you, God, that you're still the great physician, the great healer. Thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity to do this freely in this wonderful country that we live in. God, thank you, Lord. We pray that you bless every church in our city. Pray that you bless the nonprofits in our city, Lord, especially the ones that take care of the poor and the homeless because they have to be out in these elements, God, and it's cold. Lord, we pray that you keep our brothers and sisters safe. Lord, we pray that you open up our eyes today, open up our ears. Let us absorb what you have for us 
and teach us something today, God. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, guys, chapter seven of John. John is the fourth book of the New Testament. The seventh chapter is after the sixth. Okay, so let me read a little bit and we'll go back and break it down. (laughs) After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while they're seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it and that its deeds are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going to go up to the festival yet because my time has not fully come. After he said these things, he stayed in Galilee. After his brothers had gone up to the festival, he then also went up, not openly, but secretly, and the Jews were looking for him at the festival saying, where is he? And there was a lot of discussion about Jesus among the crowd, some saying, he's a good man, and others saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. Still, nobody was talking publicly about Jesus because they feared the Jews. That's the authorities, okay? So just for a little historical context, the Feast of Tabernacles was kind of one of the big three events that the Jewish people celebrated. And what it would do is uh, people would come in and it was celebrating God's provision and protection as they were going through the wilderness on their way to the promised land back in Old Testament times, okay? And it's celebrating that. And it was just like a, a, a typical festival or carnival that we'd have today. People would set up booths and they would sell things. There'd be a lot of traffic and a lot of tourists and it would just be this big event, okay? And so as this event is ramping up, Jesus's literal brothers, this is not figurative, and I know some denominations and groups would argue that Mary and Joseph had other kids, but the Bible says Jesus had brothers and sisters, not metaphorical, literal brothers and sisters. And so his literal brothers, his younger brothers, did not all believe in him yet. And in fact, they kind of said some uh, uh, snarky remarks to him. They said, hey, Jesus, why don't you go to the festival and make a name for yourself, right? Why don't you go and tell everyone and do all the things you do and, and get your stardom, get your fame. And so they were saying this derogatory to him. And so they're basically telling him that everyone else goes and seeks fame and fortune in these big festivals. Why don't you go do it too? And so Jesus replies to that and he says, well, it's not my time yet. And so Jesus tells his brothers, why don't you guys go on ahead of me? And he tells his disciples, hey, why don't you guys go too? And so as Jesus' brothers and his disciples go into the festival, right, people everywhere, they can hear people muttering about Christ. Hey, do you think Jesus is going to show up? Hey, I heard he's a really good dude. Man, I heard he's not a good guy. I heard that he's tricking people. But the overall vibe, the overall climate, if you will, of the crowd was that they liked Jesus. They wanted to see him. They genuinely wanted to know more about him in a good way, but they were afraid because there was also this very hostile opposition to Jesus. There were people that literally wanted to kill him, right? So there's this opposition. And three times, Jesus refers to timing. He says, it's not my time. It's not my time. It's not my time. And one of the fundamental ideas of Christianity that we need to know, whether you're a new believer, non-believer, or a seasoned believer, is we have to know that Jesus' time is always better than ours. He's always on time. He knows better than us, and we have to lean on that, okay? So again, when they said they wanted to kill Jesus, they really wanted to kill Jesus. It's not like when you get in an argument with your friend and like, I'm going to kill you. They genuinely wanted to hurt Jesus. And at first, this is very important, at first everyone loved Jesus, right? When Jesus is giving you free food and doing tricks for you and healing people and all these positive things, everyone's like, man, let's follow Jesus. But when Jesus started to address sin, when Jesus started to address the darkness of the people's hearts, then people said, we remember from last chapter, right? People said, oh, this is hard. We don't want to do this. And they pushed away from him. Now, listen, this same attitude is still alive and well, even in the churches today. 
We love to talk about the good things of the Bible. We want to talk about heaven. We want to talk about prosperity and blessings and everything's going to be A-OK. This life is going to be A-OK. And everyone wants to talk about the good things that God gives us. And God does give us good things. But there is also a correction that comes from Christ. In fact, he says, I discipline you because I love you. And we know that God disciplines us, corrects us. We don't like that all the time, but that's because he wants to make us better. He has our best interests at his heart. And for some reason, we push away from that when we should welcome the discipline of Jesus because it makes us into better people. It makes us into what he wants us to be. Okay, so Jesus slips into the festival, right? Puts on the glasses and the fake nose and the big curly mustache, goes into town. That's not true. I just added that in, guys. He went incognito. He went into town and he's walking around and he's trying to lay low, right? And he hears the people talking about him. He can hear the pros and the cons and he can hear the confusion. But again, no one would speak up because they were afraid that they would upset the religious people and the religious people would kick them out or they would oppress them or make fun of them or make them feel stupid. So they would not speak up. Now, the majority of this crowd, like I said earlier, they had good intentions. Their problem was is that they were ignorant and they were afraid. Now, I don't mean ignorant in a condescending mean way. They were uninformed, right? They didn't know that much about Jesus and they were afraid because they were uneducated and so they were afraid to question the religious people. Now, there's two things that we pull from this. This is very important. I'll take half the responsibility and you take the other half. The first half is this. Church leaders should welcome questions. They should welcome conversation. They should even welcome criticism as long as it is, I should have made it big and pink, informed criticism. You can criticize the church if you're educated about the church, if you know what you're talking about. I've had people call us before and they've talked to us and they say, I went to service there one time and you guys don't love people, you don't do anything for the city. And I'm like, well, I'm not trying to brag, but we do quite a bit for this city. I think you're uninformed. You can criticize me, but if you do, bring informed criticism to me. Do your homework a little bit before you engage in an argument or a debate or discussion or whatever with me. So you can bring it, but just make sure you've done your work on the front end, which, which is, then comes to your guys' responsibility. The crowd should educate themselves. Don't be afraid to speak up. Don't be afraid to ask questions, but make sure you do some of your homework on the front end. So if people are gonna come to me and say, Corey, you're saying this about Jesus. I don't think Jesus would do that. No, okay, so from where in the scripture do you pull that? Well, I don't know. Then we can't talk, right? Because you don't, you're not educated on this. When you come to me and say, well, it says this, but you're saying this. Okay, let's have this conversation. Let's have this debate. Guys, I'm not trying, this mean, trying to say this mean or condescendingly. Do not get all your Bible from me. It's not enough. It's not enough once a week to come in and for me to read you a, a, a half chapter or a chapter. You have to pick up the word of God. You need to study the word of God. You need to be educated. If you want your kids to have strong theology, it is your responsibility to teach them strong theology, not Patrick's, not Savut's, not Corey or anyone else. It is ultimately your responsibility for you to have solid theology and for your family to have solid theology. I'm helping, I'm a supplement, but I am not the whole thing. You have to do more on your own. I don't mean that bad. You guys get that, right? That's good, right? The Bible's good, right? Okay, good. All right, let's move forward. All right, just making sure. <laughs> so my wife comes to the five o'clock, right? And I know where she sits. And so if I start going down a direction that I shouldn't, I glance over her way and she sits right over in this section and I just see her do this. And I'm just like, okay. And I stop, right? The problem is she only comes to one service. <laughs> She's been doing that for eight years. Anyways, here we go. Okay, one more story. So when I, when I used to do youth work, right, I would get like, I didn't have kids at the time, so my filter was even worse, right? I just had no filter. And I would just go and I would say things and she would be in the back of the room and she would make this motion. And she'd try to be real subtle in the back of the youth room. And Kyle was my worship leader and he'd be also back there just doing this. And so I had him on both sides. It was great. <laughs> So when the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple complex and began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, how does he know the scriptures since he hasn't been trained? Jesus answered them, 
My teaching isn't mine, but it's from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will understand whether the teaching is from God or from speaking on my own. The one who speaks for himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you want to kill me? You have a demon, the crowd responded. Who wants to kill you? I did one work and you were amazed, Jesus said. A better word there would be offended. Consider this. Moses has given you circumcision, not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man well on the Sabbath? Verse 24, this is a big one. Stop judging according to outward appearances, rather judge according to righteous judgment. We'll unpack that one here in a second. Okay, so what happens is this. This uneducated carpenter from a poor town steps up and just like drops the mic, right? Steps up and starts teaching the word with authority and with clarity, and it blew the crowd away. I put uneducated in quotations. Jesus is God. He knows everything, but he didn't go to the right schools, right? He didn't, he didn't do it the way mankind wanted him to do it, so they assumed he was uneducated. Oddly enough, his disciples would get the exact same criticism. One year, fast forward a year from this time when Jesus is speaking, Peter and John are gonna be in the same city at the same festival and people are gonna be amazed by their words and they're gonna say, wait a second, weren't they fishermen? They shouldn't know how to speak this well. They shouldn't have this authority. And so they step back and we know because we have the Bible, why Jesus taught so well, because he is one with the Father, right? He got this firsthand download right from God the Father, so he knew the Word. In a roundabout way, he was the author of the Word. And so the Jews didn't really ask him a question, but Jesus gave them an answer. He basically said, you guys would understand me if your heart was in the right place. If you wanted to know the will of God, you would understand that what I'm saying is from God. Now, what this brings up is this. There are people that have studied that book backwards and forwards, right? There are people that have PhDs from, from Vanderbilt's Divinity School, and they understand the historical context, and they understand a lot of, of, of kind of semantics about the Bible, but they don't get the heart of the Bible because they're not welcoming in the correction, and they're, they're not welcoming in the will of God into their life. I also know people who are very uneducated, but they want to do the will of God. And when they read the Bible, it lights up to them, right? It clicks instantly, not because they have head knowledge, but because their heart is hungry to do what God wants them to do. If our heart goes into this in the right frame, right? If we start reading this book because we want to know the truth, things will jump off the page at us. God will give us clarity. He will help us to discern his word. But if our heart is not willing, we will not receive the revelations of God. Okay? So what Jesus says is this. He says, guys, the way you guys are doing it now is not working. He was talking specifically to the religious people, right? The Pharisees. And he said, the law of the Old Testament is not meant to save us. What the law of the Old Testament does is it defines what is right and wrong. It was never meant to save us. But the Jewish people misinterpreted that, listen, if we just follow the rules, it doesn't matter where our heart is. As long as we follow the rules, we'll be okay. And Jesus came to say, no, 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 it's deeper than that. It's a heart problem with you. I'm jumping ahead of myself. But when we look at the Ten Commandments, us in this room, if you go back to Exodus 20 and look at them, we can read those and say, man, I do pretty good with those. I've never killed anyone. I've never cheated on my wife. Jesus comes onto the scene in the New Testament and says, wait a second. If you have ever hated someone, you've committed murder in your heart. Uh-oh. If you've ever looked at another woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. And so what Jesus is saying is, as good as you think you are, your, your heart is still in the wrong place. But Jesus came to liberate us of the pressures of having to be perfect. That doesn't give us an excuse to sin, but he came and said, look, you guys can't follow these rules. You're not meant to do all these things. You can't, you can't possibly uphold all these things, but I came to bring you grace. I came to pay off your debt. I came to help you. And what was their response to that? They wanted to kill him. 
And Jesus called that out. He said, your guys' hearts are bad. Some of you are thinking about murder right now. And so this struck a nerve with them because the rule followers, right? The legalistic rule followers said, we're following all the rules. And Jesus said, you guys have murderous hearts. And because they were angry about that, they fired back and said, you must have a demon in you. You're demon possessed. And so what we see is this. Because people focused on the rules, guys, I'm not against rules. I hope you don't misinterpret that. But if I just follow a checklist, uh, like I took my wife out this week, I said hi to her today, I told her I loved her three times, we're good. But if I don't feel it in my heart, it's not real love, it's not a relationship. That's what these men were doing. And because they would just follow the rules, they started comparing themselves to each other. They became self-righteous. Well, I follow nine of the 10 commandments and my buddy Wayne over here follows eight of them. I'm better than him, right? I'm better than him. But we're not supposed to compare ourselves to each other. We're supposed to compare ourselves to God. And when we compare ourselves to God, none of us look too hot, right? He's the standard of righteousness. But if we continue to compare ourselves with each other, we become competitive. We become uh, arrogant because I might be better than my neighbor. Or if we're not as good as our neighbor, we start becoming ashamed of ourselves. And this is not God's intention. That's not what he wants to do. Not only does self-righteousness breed this competition and this rivalry and this shame, self-righteousness also makes us hypocrites. Here's what the Jews were doing. The Jews got on to Jesus for healing a man that couldn't walk for 38 years. That was a couple of chapters ago, right? Healed a man, but he did it on a Saturday. He did it on a Sabbath day. They said, how dare you do something miraculous on a Sabbath day? But what they would do is if a Jewish boy was born, let's say on a Tuesday, and they circumcised him X amount of days after they're born, and let's say that fell on a Saturday, they would do it because the law said they had to do it. So they would break one law in order to honor another law. And that's hypocrisy. And Jesus said, if your whole life is just based on rule following, you're eventually going to become a hypocrite. He was also pointing to them that they had loved, see if this resonates with modern day Christianity, they loved the day of worship more than the one that they were supposed to be worshiping. I'm a good Christian, Corey. I go to church every week. I never pick up my Bible, read. I treat people like crap. I don't tithe or give or serve, but I go to church every week. I follow the rules, but it's not about the rules. It's about the creator of the rules. It's deeper than that. And so at the end of this portion, this this chunk that we just read, again, Jesus drops the mic, right? He drops the mic six million times in the gospel. And this is one of those. They didn't have microphones, but if they did, that's when he would have dropped it. And what Jesus talks about, is he actually tells us to judge. One of the most misinterpreted passages in the entire word of God. The one scripture that everyone on planet earth knows is Matthew 7, 2, judge not lest ye be judged. We even know it in the King James, right? That's funny. So even if you're not a believer, we all know this one scripture. So if you're cheating on your wife and I come up and say, don't do that. Oh, don't judge me. Jesus said, judge not, right? And we misinterpret this. We don't read on a little bit further where Jesus actually says, judge, but make sure the plank of wood is out of your eye so you can help your brother remove the splinter in theirs. In this book of the Bible, Jesus tells us to judge, but we're not to judge based just on the outward appearances, that we're to do some research, that we're to judge without hypocrisy, that we're to judge with righteous judgment. If you go on in the New Testament, Paul tells us that we're actually to judge Christians more harshly than non-Christians. It's funny, we do it the exact opposite. Look at these non-believers, aren't they awful and bad? You know what the difference between them and you are? You know the truth and you still make mistakes. So we're to judge Christians at a higher standard because we know better. That doesn't mean that we can't look at what the world's doing and say that's wrong but it means that we we have to go and educate them. We have to tell them the truth. We have to share the gospel with them. Okay, all right, you guys still with me? Two more parts, okay? Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, "Isn't isn't this the man they wanna kill? Yet look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man came from. And when the Messiah comes, nobody's going to know where he's from. As he was teaching in the temple complex, Jesus cried out, You know me, and you know where I'm from. Yet I have not come on my own, 
but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I'm from him and he sent me. Then they tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. However, many from the crowd believed in him. And they said, when the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man has done, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Jesus. So the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple police to arrest him. Then Jesus said, I'm among you for a short time. Then I'm going to the one who sent me. You'll look for me, but you won't find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said to one another, where does he intend to go that we won't find him? He doesn't intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, does he? What is this remark that he made that you will look for me and you will not find me and where I am, you can't come? So there's a minor miracle that happens here. When Jesus, I say minor, you can pass over it easily if you're not looking for it. Jesus is speaking publicly, right? Right in the city center, speaking publicly, thousands of people, and there are people that want to grab him, take him, arrest him, and kill him. And it says, as they wanted to, though, no one could lay a hand on him. He taught with no challenge. Now, that led some people to believe, well, maybe the Pharisees actually like this guy. Maybe they think he is the Messiah. But we know that's not the case. That's an ignorant thing to say. Another ignorant thing to say that the crowd said was, is they said, when the Messiah comes, we're not going to know where he's from, right? We know where this guy's from. The Bible says we're not going to know where he's from. That's not true. In fact, in the Old Testament, it said exactly where the Messiah was going to come from. In Micah 5, 2, from Bethlehem, which is where Jesus was born, right? So what we see is this. Ignorance, biblical ignorance, is not bliss. Because the crowd, this is so important, because the crowd was ignorant about the biblical facts about Jesus, they started going down a path that was wrong. It is still the case today. When people come, I don't think Jesus would do that. Well, what is your basis for that? There is one book that defines and kind of characterizes the nature of God, and that is the Bible. And if one is a Christian, if we claim to follow Jesus Christ, we must believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. I know that sounds so simple, but the young lady called the office this week. She's been here one time and she criticized my views of Jesus. And I said, well, where do you get your views of Jesus? Well, from the gospel of Judas, from the book of Enoch, from all these Gnostic gospels that are quite frankly crap, but all these different Gnostic gospels. And she said, I include those in my thinking of Jesus. And I said, you cannot have both Jesuses. The gospel of Judas says that Jesus never died on the cross, that he got married and had kids. That doesn't align with this. If you take the cross away from Christ, he's just a man. He's nothing. And that removes the power. This whole book is centered around the cross. And if you remove that, that is evil. And that book doesn't coincide with this. So Christians are, at least they should be, what's called solo scriptura, which means we believe the Bible alone holds the answers to who Jesus is. Solo scriptura, okay? It actually says this in the New Testament. Paul wrote this to Timothy. You have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture not just the ones that line up with culture, not just the ones that agree with me, not just the ones that sit right with me. All scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training so that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. The whole thing. If you're gonna take this, you gotta take the whole thing, the whole thing. And so this crowd was actually a receptive crowd. The, the crowd that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, right? Two weeks ago, the, the, the fangirl crowd that met at the Sea of Galilee and they just wanted to like take you know, pictures with their iPhones and get some free bread and coffee and they didn't have coffee. But anyways, they just came to like see the show and to get something free to eat. They left when the going got tough. This crowd is not the same crowd. After this crowd at the festival heard who Jesus was, they heard him speak. They stepped back and they said, whoa, when the Messiah comes, he's not going to say anything better than that. They meant, this is the guy. And it wasn't because of the miracles that they saw. It was because the words that they heard. It was the authority by which Jesus was speaking. It was the clarity. They could feel it in their chest. 
They could feel that he was the right guy. Of course, the Pharisees get livid at this, right? They're the bad guys, if you don't know, if you're new. And at hearing that many of the crowd accepted Jesus, they said, hey, get the police, right? They picked up their Nokia phone and they're calling the police. And it's like, it was a long time ago. So they had those big block phones. So come down here, <laughs> get Jesus and get him out of here, right? <laughs> that was dumb. <laughs> and so, so what Jesus says, knowing that they want to arrest him, is he speaks to the crowd and he says, guys, I only got a short time. Now listen, if you're studying the book of John with us, if you start at chapter seven, there's only six months left of Jesus's life throughout the rest of the book, the book of John, okay? So we're at the tail end of his 33-year uh, life. And so he warns the crowd, he says, I'm gonna go back to the Father. And they're confused by this. They don't understand what he's saying. They're like, where's he gonna go? Is he gonna leave Israel and go teach the Greeks? Is he gonna go to Rome? Is he gonna go to other parts of the world? And that was never Jesus's intention. Another huge misunderstanding with the Bible is Jesus said that his disciples would do greater things than him. Now, I'm not trying to be a jerk, but there are these hyper-charismatic churches where they claim feathers fall from the sky or gold dust appears, and they, their, their excuse is, God said we're gonna do greater things than him. Now listen, let me put this in perspective. Jesus was murdered and raised himself from the dead. You're not gonna do anything better than that. It's not gonna happen. There's no greater miracle than the resurrection. Not gonna happen. What Jesus meant by you're going to do greater things is Jesus chose to confine himself to Israel. He only spread the gospel in this little sliver. The greater things the disciples would do is take the gospel to the entire world. Billions and billions of people. That is the greater thing that they would do. You're not going to do any greater miracles than God and what Jesus Christ did when he was on earth, but we got to spread the gospel to the other parts of the world. What this whole point shows us, guys, the Achilles heel of modern day North American Christianity, the Achilles heel is that people do not study the word of God. They do not study the word of God. And this section shows us that there are dangers of biblical ignorance. And one way that true faith is demonstrated is by reading the word of God and by studying the word of God. I cannot tell you how many young people have left our church and gone to you know, sexier, cooler churches. They've gone on mission fields or whatever because they don't wanna dive into the word. They just wanna feel stuff and be in worship environments. I can't tell you how many of those no longer walk with Christ right now because they have no anchor, they have no foundation. And whenever they don't feel the Lord, they turn their back on the Lord because they failed to worship him in spirit and in truth, and in truth. And without the anchor of the Bible, we will become imbalanced, we will become chaotic, and quite frankly, we will become dangerous to other people. Harsh words, right? But that's why we follow the word of God. No, that's cool. You're the first service to clap for that, that's good. All right, last part, guys, and I'll get out of here. I'm taking way too long. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the spirit. Look at these next two verses, so big. He said this about the spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been received because Jesus had not yet been glorified. When some of the crowd heard these words, they said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some said, surely the Messiah won't come from Galilee, will he? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? So a division occurred among the crowd because of Jesus. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. When the temple police came back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, they asked them, why haven't you brought him? And the police answered, no man has ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees responded to them, are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd who doesn't know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, the one who came to Jesus previously, being one of them, said to them, our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? They replied to him, you aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied, investigate and see that no prophet arises 
from Galilee. Now, it's the last day of the festival. Let me see if I can paint a good picture of this. On the very last day of the festival, there was a ceremony that the high priest would do. They would build an altar in the temple courtyard, right right in the middle of the city. Almost like if you were to go to our downtown square, the whole city's gathered around. The high priest would walk seven times around this altar, right? Talking about the, the, the Jericho, right? Symbolizing Jericho, would walk around the wall. And then after the seventh time, would get a big basin of water and a basin of wine and would pour it over the altar, okay? That's what they would do. And it symbolized God pouring out his provision, his help over his people, okay? So Jesus chose to tell the whole crowd that he was the savior, that he was going to pour out his spirit. He chose to do this right in front of this very symbolic act. And so what that was foreshadowing, it was foreshadowing the day that was gonna come very soon, actually, very soon in about eight months from this time, the day when God was going to pour out his spirit on all those who believed. Now, what that's referring to is in the Old Testament, one of the prophets said there would come this time when God's gonna send a Messiah and he's gonna pour out his spirit on all those who believe. And Jesus alludes to this in verse 39. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit worked, but it worked in blasts, right? It was kind of a temporary thing in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, after Jesus dies on the cross, once he's glorified, it says in Acts chapter two that he pours out his spirit on all those who believe. That's when the upper room, they pour out onto the streets and they're speaking in tongues and everyone's like, the Christians are drunk and Peter's like, they're not drunk. And he explains all this to them. So what Jesus is doing in the middle of the high point of this festival is he is inviting people. He's foreshadowing the cross, the water and the blood, right? He's foreshadowing that he's gonna go through this humiliation and this agony and this torment and this pain and he's gonna resurrect and it's gonna be this invitation for us to share in this relationship with God. That not only do we get to have a relationship with God, listen, a part of God will live in us. The same Holy Spirit that resurrects Christ up will be in us. And here's the just flabbergasting part of this that that, that separated people, that polarized people. Some were like, right on, I want a part of that. Others made fun of Jesus and others wanted to kill him. Some heard it and they believed, but they didn't act on it. It's a lot of people today. And then some people debated, they wanted to have a religious debate. And then some people just became downright hostile towards him and they hated him because of it. So I love this, right? The temple police were in that crowd. So they go back to headquarters, right? They go back to the Pharisees and the chief priests and the the police show up and they're like, where's Jesus? And they're like, have you heard that guy? (laughs) I mean, they're like, have you heard him speak? Men don't speak like that. They had bought into it. And the Pharisees were like, oh my gosh, he got to you too? And they put everything on the line for them, the temple police to say, there's something about that guy. It could have cost them their jobs. It could have cost them their social status. They could have got excommunicated from the Jewish fellowship. They could have got, everything was on the line. And so we see though that Jesus really struck a chord with these guys. And here's here's what the Pharisees say though. I love these next two slides. The Pharisees say, but we're the smart ones. We're the educated ones and we have not endorsed him yet. We have not done that yet. So since you guys disagree with us, you are cursed, you're out. And this showed this huge division between the intelligentsia, the smart people, right? The scholars and then the normal people. And in essence, the scholars, this is so important. The scholars looked at them and said, only an idiot would believe in Jesus. Now, that idea still resonates now, that only idiots would believe in Jesus. Now, when the Pharisees said this, they didn't know there was a couple of closet Christians within their group. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, very important men, influential, powerful men that believed in Jesus and they were intelligent. And this is still a misunderstanding today. I don't know how many of you have been told no smart people follow Jesus, right? We have doctors and lawyers and judges, and we have many brilliant people at this church, but let's look outside of our church. I can do this all day long. This is one of my favorite points to talk about with people. Whenever people say that only uneducated people follow Jesus, 
Francis Collins is a scientist that created the Human Genome Project in the 1990s. Bill Clinton said the greatest discovery of the last century was the Human Genome Project. And Francis Collins, basically what he did is he discovered how DNA works. He is a Bible-believing, creationist-believing Christian. He wrote a book called The Language of God. Fantastic, brilliant man, brilliant scientist. Marianne Glendon is a female lawyer, not just a lawyer. Forbes magazine made a list of the 50 most powerful lawyers on planet Earth, and Marianne Glendon was one of the top 10. A brilliant woman, a Bible-believing, devout Christian person. Colin Humphreys is the head of the physics department at Cambridge, one of the original universities and one of the most liberal universities on the face of the planet. He is the head of the physics department and is a devouted Anglican. So William Phillips won the Nobel Prize for Physics and Astronomy in 1997. A brilliant man, also a devout Christian. I could go on and on and on. So the argument that guys like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and all these very hostile atheists use to say that no educated people follow Christ, that is simply not true. Simply not true. And so John concludes this chapter with a comparison of the law, right? Logic, the law, and grace. And so Nicodemus, who was a scholar of the law, tried to like level-head everyone, right? Hey, let's, let's be level-headed here. Let's chill out, right? Let's at least follow our own laws. We're convicting this man, and we haven't even tried him yet. But because their hearts were evil, they were blind to love, and they were blind to justice. Here's what they were blind about. The law was intended to distinguish good and evil. The law was intended to show us what is sin and what is righteousness, what is good and what is bad. But they thought that it saved them. But what we see is the law has no power to change our hearts. Simply following the rules does not change our hearts. So again, what is the purpose of the law? The Ten Commandments are good, guys. Right, when Moses came down with the 15, oh no, Ten Commandments, right? It's good. The Ten, <laughs> the Ten Commandments are good, and they define sin. And listen, we should try to honor them to the best of our abilities. But like I said earlier, even when we think we've followed them all, Jesus reminds us that our hearts, if we've thought hateful things, we've murdered people. If we've thought lustful things, we've cheated. So Jesus reminds us that we are incapable of complying with the Ten Commandments the way we should. Not only are we incapable of complying with them, we've added so many things to the Ten Commandments. You know, the Jews added over 1,500 laws to the Ten that God gave us, and they just added on more and more and more. Then it became so convoluted and became so complicated that no one could even remember all the laws. But the thing is, the laws that God gave us are not intended to save us. They're intended to point us to the one that can save us. They're intended to be a huge arrow when we learn that we are not enough. The Ten Commandments point us towards the one that is enough. And what that is and what Jesus came to do is give us an invitation, listen, an invitation to not depend on our work, but to rely on His. We have this invitation where we know we're not going to be good enough. Listen, the Bible says we have to be righteous. We have to be holy like God is holy. Oh, that's a problem. We can't. We can't be. But what we do, because we cannot be holy on our own, is we must rely on God's unmerited love. We must rely on, on God's unmerited favor, His grace. It's a bad analogy, but I use it every time. If I'm shooting a bow and arrow and I shoot at the target and I miss it, right? I do my best, but I miss it. And I miss it every time. Jesus is the one that says, hey, look over there. Moves the arrow right on the bullseye, right? You've done it. Look, look, it's good. And it's not because I did it. I took my best shot, but I missed. But by his grace, by his grace, he puts it exactly where it needs to be. So we need to rely on his grace, his love to help us. We also must be filled with his spirit because without his spirit, we're not justified. That's a fancy way of saying without his spirit, we cannot stand in front of God. And he gives us the ability to stand in front of God pure and clean because we're filled with his spirit and because we're covered by his grace. And it doesn't stop there. With his spirit, we're also sanctified. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that means? 
That means that every single one of us in this room have a purpose that God wants us to act out. God has a destiny for us. And when he sanctifies us, when he sets us aside, when he refines us, when he cuts the bad things off, when he grows new good things in us, when he refines us, like the Bible says, like gold. You know how you refine gold? You turn the heat up on it. You boil it. So there are these times of tension and pressure, but God is doing something in us and he's setting us aside for a purpose, for a reason. And we receive all this grace by simply believing in him. But true belief is demonstrated by biblically balanced lifestyle, by a filter to where everything we do is filtered by Jesus and by the word of God. I know it's cliche, would Jesus watch this? Would Jesus listen to that? Would Jesus be in this conversation? Would Jesus gossip? How would Jesus respond if this person treats me bad? And the only way we know that, guys, is this book. That's it. It's the only way we know how Jesus would respond. So everything has to be filtered through the Bible and through the Word of God. Here's what I want to do for you today. And it's not my invitation, it's God's, but I, I just want to extend it to you. Some of you are tired. Tired. Some of you are growing weary of doing good things. Some of you are trying the best you can to break that addiction. You're trying, you're trying so hard to break those bad habits or to work on your attitude or your temper, whatever the case may be. And you're struggling and you're just worn out. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I bet if I did, I bet a lot of you would raise your hands. I'm tired. I'm tired. <laughs> Here's what I want to invite you to. God says, bring it to me. Bring it to me. Bring your heavy burdens because my yoke is light. It's light. What that means, it doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility. What Jesus does when he says my yoke is light, do you know how a yoke works? It takes two. One gets under one side and holds it up, but the beauty is Jesus gets on the other side. He says, you got it? I'm gonna help you. We're gonna walk this road together. We're gonna move forward together. I know you're tired, but you got my strength too, right? We're gonna push forward. We're gonna move towards the mark. I got you. Come on, come on, come on, come on. And he walks with us. How do we know that that's biblically based? When Jesus was carrying his cross up, a man named Simon, a Jewish African man, was there and the Romans pulled him aside and he got under that cross. Jesus still had to carry his cross, but Simon was there with him. And that's what God does for us. He gets underneath that weight with us and he helps us go forward and he helps us push towards the mark and he helps us maintain our sanity and he helps us balance our work life and balance our family life and balance our spiritual life. He helps us. And some of you guys are so tired and you have to put some of that weight on him. You have to put that stress on him. You have to cast your cares on him because he cares for you, the Bible says. You're not meant to walk this alone. You're not meant to carry all that. He'll help you, but you gotta let him. He invites you. Hey, let me help you bear some of that weight. Some of you are tired and you need to let the Lord give you some rest some liberation, some peace, some freedom. Would you bow your heads with me? If you're in this room and you are not a believer in Jesus, I am extremely glad you're here. This is where you need to be. We'll never make you feel uncomfortable. We'll never put an undue pressure on you or any of that. We'll treat you like brothers and sisters. But if you're here and you're not a believer and maybe you're here because you're, you're, you're stressed, you're worn out, you've reached the end of the line, you're, you're at the end of your rope, I wanna tell you, there's many benefits to following Jesus, but one of the greatest ones is he helps you through life. He helps you navigate the confusion. He gives you clarity. He gives you some relief. Is it always easy? No, but he's there. He's there to help. And if you're struggling, if you're in here and you're struggling, there's men and women on both sides. If you want to have them pray for you, even if you don't believe, let them pray for you. Let them speak to you. If you have questions, ask them. If you're in here and you are a believer, 
There's two things. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, this invitation is mine. There's two things you can do if you're in here and you're a believer. If you have not trusted God to help you carry the weight, you need to ask his forgiveness. God, I'm sorry I haven't trusted you. I know you love me. I know you want to help me carry this weight, but I haven't trusted you with it. Ask for his forgiveness and he'll forgive you. And then either go to the communion table and take that bread and juice. Now, what that does, communion, is it's a tangible reminder. If you ever question if God loves you and wants to carry your burdens and help you, God gave his only son, humiliating, agonizing death. And he did that so he could pour out his spirit and help us, give us strength and encouragement. It reminds us, some of you need to be reminded that God is walking this road with you. And if you need, the other invitation is this, if you're in here and you're a Christian and you're just struggling, let some of these brothers and sisters at the front pray for you. Let them help. Let them get under some of that weight. Galatians 6.1 says, bear each other's burdens. That fulfills the law of Christ. Let them help you. Let them pray for you. Father God, I love you. Lord, right now, Jesus, for everyone in this room who's not a believer and they are tired and weary, God, I pray, Lord, that you just speak to them in some way, God. Let them feel you, or Lord, let them be encouraged, God. If they're seeking the truth, Lord, show them however you see fit. God, if there are people in this room who are, who are good Christian men and women, but they are just growing tired. They're tired of constantly fighting with temptation. They're tired of constantly fighting with lust or greed or bad attitudes or whatever it is. God, forgive them and help them, Lord. Give them strength. Lord, deliver them from evil. Protect them, God. Lord, for the men and women in here who are doing good things, but they're just getting tired. They feel discouraged. God, give them strength, Lord. Give them strength in their legs, God. Give them strength in their arms. Give them strength in their hearts and in their minds, God, to not grow weary and to not give up. Lord, you're so good. Thank you for your grace, God. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We love you guys so much. I hope you have a great week. You're welcome to help yourself.